on his way into the city of Corinth, having recently spent time in Athens. Chapter 18 of the book of Acts, verse 1 through 17. These 17 verses encapsulate 18 months of gospel ministry in one place for the Apostle Paul. Very unusual for him to spend the time he spends in Corinth in comparison to the cities he has visited prior to this one. But the fact that Luke puts it into 17 verses is a testimony to your and my soul of what the writer Luke is doing. He is laying out before us the advance of the kingdom of grace through the preaching of the gospel. He is not laying out for us the best places to eat in Corinth or the peculiarity of the clothing they wore. His chief interest is in how the gospel is sown and how salvation is reaped. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and Father, we thank you, we praise you, we bow our head before you, and we confess, O God, that we are in need of your help now, especially on the occasion of the public reading of Scripture and the preaching of your word. Father, we pray for your help. We pray that you would indeed visit each and all that we might be able to attend upon the voice of the Master, that you would indeed, Father, hold us fast, that we would receive a benefit from having heard the word of God. Lord, grant us ears to hear it, hearts to believe it, wills to obey it. Grant us, Lord, even a reformation of our personal lives, of our beliefs, of our convictions, of the things that we consider ultimate. Reform us, Lord, we pray. Conform us, we pray, to the image of your beloved Son, who is even now at your right hand, making intercession for us. We ask in his name, then. Amen. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, 
together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God, contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is God's word. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is a disruptive, intrusive, unsettling, and controversial message to the cities of the world. The gospel is not always welcome, nor is it always protected by the rulers of the cities of men. And like men of ordinary rank over whom they tower, the rulers of these cities are often blind to the truth and the glory of the gospel. If they were not blind, they would always be wanting the people of their city to hear the gospel. This would be a magistrate at his peak performance wanting the gospel heard in his city. Because the gospel is the final answer to all the great needs of both the large and the small cities of men, Gallio shows his folly in that he is unlearned in the differences between words that he mocks and belittles. He shows his folly in letting Sosthenes be beaten before his tribunal, his bima, is the Greek, the very Sosthenes whom Paul names in his first verse, in his first letter to the Corinthians. I, the Apostle Paul, and Sosthenes greet you. Gallio is not at peak performance as a magistrate, for if he were, he would desire the gospel to be preached because it is the solution. It is the answer for all the cities of men. That God in Jesus Christ is reconciling sinners to himself, no longer counting their trespasses against them, but instead he is freely granting repentance, forgiveness of sins, new life in the Holy Spirit, and an inheritance kept in heaven that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Jesus Christ is that inheritance. But this gospel of salvation, as we see again in Corinth, stirs up jealousy because fundamental to the gospel message 
is that all people everywhere must leave behind whatever ultimate commitments they previously held to, and they must come to Christ if they are to be reconciled to God. This makes lesser kings jealous. This makes lesser lords jealous. This makes politicians jealous because kings and lords and politicians want to be part of the ultimacy of men. That's why many even keep this office. This gospel makes parents and siblings jealous. This gospel makes religious leaders jealous. This gospel makes old acquaintances jealous. This gospel makes patriotic cities and states and nations jealous. Because all these things which I have just said, all in their idolatry want to be the ultimate to the soul of men. And the gospel makes them jealous. Because Jesus Christ alone is king of kings, lord of lords, I can't help it, glory hallelujah. You know the song. Christ alone has all authority in heaven and earth. He alone holds the keys to death and hell. He is the one before whom all men must bow and confess. Blessed is he then who confesses Christ in this age. He shall not be cast out in the age to come. Now, in our text this morning, Paul has come with the gospel to the city of Corinth. This is a significant city of the Roman Empire. Corinth had once been the chief rival to Athens, a political, a commercial, a naval competitor of the first order, Corinth. Corinth, after all, was located on an isthmus. An isthmus is a narrow land bridge, this one four miles wide, five times as long. It connected two populations that have access to two bodies of water on either side of the isthmus. This made Corinth an incredibly prosperous place. Ports bringing ships from all over the world, from the north and the south to one Isthmus city. But in 146 BC, the Roman general Lucius Mummius Achaicus, that general, he put, an, he put down an anti-Roman revolt taking place in Corinth, and in his putting it down, he put every man in the city to the sword. He sold all the women and children into slavery, He packed up all the paintings, all the statues, all the works of art, and he shipped them to Rome. And they left the city of Corinth as a witness to rebels. They left it derelict for a hundred years. In 44 BC, along comes Julius Caesar, and he refounded the city, and it was called Laus Iulia Corinthus. Corinth, the praise of Julius. And it did not take long at all for Corinth to recover its old glory. It again became a thriving business center with a greatly adored temple of Aphrodite. And it would be this temple and its local sex cult which would give religious sanction to all the perverse acts that the Corinthians became known for. Common phrases 
spread from Corinth all over the known world. Act like a Corinthian meant practice fornication outside of marriage and inside it. Corinthian companions, Corinthian girls, was an oblique reference to prostitutes. So when the Apostle Paul arrives at the city of Corinth, it would have been quite easy for him to get this kind of conversation going in his head. I don't need this. I don't need this grief. I've just been in Athens. This place smells like Sodom. This place sounds like Babylon. I don't need this. I need to get home to Jerusalem. It would have been easy for Paul to slip into a ministry of condemnation and start counting their trespasses against them. But Paul knew what he once was. Do you know what you once were? You can tell if you know from whence you have come by how you deal with sinners, how you deal with the trespasses of men who can't do anything but grope in the dark. You can tell if you know from where you've come, depending on how you desire to bring about those who are condemned into the light of God's mercy. Paul knew from where he was from. He had been a wretched man. And by God's spirit, Paul's spirit, could not comfortably live in the pompous, pretentious air of self-righteousness. The pompous, pretentious air of self-righteousness was, in fact, more repugnant to Paul than the foul air of Corinthian perversity. Self-righteousness is a more malicious attack against the honor of Christ than the black sins of the Corinthians. Remember, Paul, though a Jew, had once been a fierce enemy of Christ a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. That's his own resume in Philippians. But Christ showed Paul mercy. Paul explains his own experience of Christ to Timothy. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 1.14. And to top off this mercy, Paul says, Christ appointed Paul to his service. He enlisted him as an apostle. He made a wretched man like me your pastor. Mercy's, mercy makes you laugh a little bit, makes you chuckle at what God does, putting turtles on fence posts. What a wonder. Paul knew who he was and from where he had come. So Paul cannot stay on the edges he cannot walk on the edges of this proud and perverse city and then keep moving east. He turns into the city, and the always ripe and the always ready mercies of the risen Christ compel him downtown. And once inside the city, he receives the most encouraging word, and it's from the Lord Jesus himself. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, 
for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, after what had happened to Paul and Silas and Philippi, this was a very welcome word from the risen Christ. In Philippi, Paul had been stripped naked, been beaten with rods by professional goons, and thrown into prison. Our Lord Jesus is telling him in this night vision, no such thing will happen to you in Corinth. He would not die in Corinth. And this word from our risen Lord allows Paul to expedite his plans to settle down and to get to the work, to find a place to stay, to not fear at every whisper over his shoulder. And he stays in the city for 18 months. Without this word from the Lord in 9 and 10, Paul would have kept an eye on the door, always ready for things to get dangerous, always ready to make a midnight escape again. But not this time. The Lord has pinned his shoes to the floor. Paul is going to end up being the church planter and the overseer of the church plant himself for a year and a half. I want to notice another thing or two or three, perhaps four, since we're the church of the bonus. I want to notice a few things from just these two verses, 9 and 10, because they are the pinnacle, the Lord Jesus from heaven coming to speak to his servant. And I want you to notice something. Big picture of both of these two verses, the Lord's words. The Lord did not tell this to Paul when he was in Athens. Hey, Paul, get to Corinth. It's going to be awesome there. There's a guy named Crispus waiting for you. The Lord tells this to Paul after he has moved downtown, after he has already raised the ire of the Jews. The Lord has waited to give Paul a timely, encouraging word for his soul just when he needed it. And beloved, this is exactly how Jesus is going to deal with you. Jesus Christ, from the right hand of God in heaven, is going to come when you need it and not give you a vision so that you can write new scripture, but he is certainly going to come to your soul when you need him to come a special way, and he is going to give you a timely word of encouragement so that you can finish, perhaps, that last week of your life so that you can finish that perhaps that last hour of your life, so that you can finish perhaps something less severe, that Thanksgiving dinner with a table filled with unbelieving family. The Lord is timely in his word for his dear ones. He will come to your soul in a way that is special and wonderful when you need him. So don't think, I, I'm so not ready to die. Jesus will have you ready. He will not leave any member of his body without his comfort, without his own dear presence. I am with you, he says to Paul. He does not withhold that word from you. Now, let's look at a few things from these two verses. Notice, first, the Lord says to Paul, do not be afraid. The Lord says this because, newsflash, Paul is afraid. I mean, I'm afraid to get a connecting flight in Vegas. 
Paul is afraid of Corinth. He is no superhero. He does not enjoy being despised. Do you? He does not enjoy being rejected by men. He does not enjoy the threat of violence. He does not sleep easy when rumors reach his ear that he is going to be kidnapped tomorrow and dragged down a back alley and stoned to death like Deacon Stephen was back in Acts 7. Paul does not sleep easy on that stuff. Paul later wrote to this church, 1 Corinthians 2.3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Wow. Paul, you should kind of hide that because that makes us think less of you. Paul leans in. That's exactly what I was was hoping, actually, that you would think less of me because Christ is my strength. I do not possess it myself. My faith in Christ is my strength. Paul did not have within himself a natural fortitude to oppose the powers of darkness. And, beloved, neither do any of you. The Lord knew what Paul needed. He needed a fresh glimpse of a more firm reality that Jesus Christ was enthroned, that Jesus Christ was at the right hand of God, that Jesus Christ is ruling over all of the affairs of men, and he takes the globe of the earth and he turns it and shakes it and taps it to bring everything along the way he wants it to be, even the day of our death the place of our life, and the hour of our birth. Paul needed a fresh glimpse of a more firm reality, and that more firm reality is not what he could see before him in Corinth. That's passing away. That which is most firm is permanent, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So let us remember Let us remember the fortitude we need for valiant Christian living among perverse men and valiant Christian witness among unbelieving men. The firmness we need, the fortitude we need for all of this is not somewhere in here. It is up there where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We need greater certainty of unseen things which are more real and lasting than that which is seen, but passing away. We should all master one of the shortest prayers in the Bible. I'm going to help you master it this morning. This is going to be like a a little clinic for a moment. I'm going to help you master and use the shortest prayer in the New Testament. It's Luke chapter 17, verse 5. Lord, increase our faith. Should I go over it again? Beloved, this is what you need. Why did that little prayer get recorded by the same author of this book called Acts of the Apostles? The Spirit would have it recorded coming from the collective mouth of the disciples because the whole church must learn that what we need is not different circumstances, not fewer enemies, not simply more of this and less of that, We need an increase of our faith. We need to see the unseen things more firmly 
because the seen things are always fooling us. But Jesus says the the visible things are passing away, this world and its lusts. We should also note in verse 9 that the Lord told Paul to go on speaking. Now, preachers love this verse. You know, I'm going to take take away your watch and put it in your pocket. The Lord just gave me a command. No, we don't use the Bible like that. But notice very carefully, go on speaking. And then the Lord adds, do not be silent. This, beloved, is an authoritative counter-directive to all that Paul had been hearing from unbelieving Jews in Corinth and perhaps even some of his close advisors. Paul, you need to quiet down. No, Paul, you need to shut up. In their opposition to the gospel, the Jews were saying, stop speaking, Paul. Be silent, Paul. You're going to get yourself hurt, Paul. Jesus from heaven, in opposition to the Jews, says, go on speaking and do not be silent. In fact, Jesus then tells Paul, you will never be safer than when you are preaching and teaching the gospel. Christian church, you will never be safer than when you are in close association and support and prayer for the preaching and teaching of the gospel. You're not all called to that, but you will never be safer than when you are a partner of it. Verse 10, there it is for I am with you. Well, where's the Lord Jesus today? He is with all those who are associated with the preaching of his word. Christ is with his church in power when she is proclaiming the foolishness of the cross, which is the very wisdom of God. So let us remember, Christian witness Christian witness is not carried into our cities by good works alone. There must also be good words. There must be gospel preaching. Do not be silent. Look how Paul bore witness to Christ in Corinth. Paul had both good works and good words. What were his good works? Well, we read about him a moment moment ago. Paul was busy as a tent maker, except on the Sabbath. That was actually Paul's good work. He tells us why. In his second letter to these very same people, the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9, Paul says, I didn't take any money from you when I first came because I didn't want to burden anyone and have you think that I was in this for the grift. Now, Paul doesn't stay just working and only using the Sabbath. Something changes in a little while. When Silas and Timothy arrive, our text says, from Macedonia, they brought with them a financial gift so Paul could actually stop working and use a gift from an established church to be occupied with the word, verse 5. Paul actually explains in 2 Corinthians 11 again 
how this gift was carried to him from Macedonia, and by it, he was able to preach the word more. So Paul never goes so far at all to say that the second generation of gospel ministers who are not apostles should be tent makers. He actually makes the opposite argument. And here he's showing us that even his tent making was, of his, was one of his good works. But of course, he must bring the good word, which is the gospel of salvation. So let us remember, and I know I'm kind of pounding this, Christian witness requires the word of salvation through Christ crucified and risen to be spoken to men. Men cannot be saved simply by observing your good works. Your good works will certainly be a witness to the truthfulness and quality of your words. Therefore, we shouldn't just think preaching without good works is the call of Christ. Good works and good words. Do not be silent. Do not forget the three questions Paul asked over in Romans 10, 14. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Do you know the answer to those three questions? Paul answers all of them in one statement a couple of verses later. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Somebody must be sent. Somebody must be speaking. Somebody must be refusing silence. It is not a matter of debate. It is necessary to use words to advance Christ's kingdom of grace because men cannot see within nature the gospel of their salvation, that the righteousness required of them is all been completed in the obedience of Jesus Christ. They cannot see that in a flower. They cannot see that in a saint. They must hear it in a proclamation. Now take a note of another thing Jesus says to Paul in verse 10. For I have many in this city who are my people. This is a huge encouragement to Paul. By these words, Christ not only declares his sovereignty over the salvation of men, but he infuses his people with optimism that many will indeed be saved. Now consider the sovereignty of our Lord. He says, I have many in this city. By these words, Jesus assures Paul that he, Jesus, sees that which Paul has not yet seen. Paul has not seen all the souls the Lord sees who will be saved. Paul has seen some, verse 8 says so, but the Lord has seen all. The Lord sees the full many. He sees all those who belong to him, even though they have not all yet been called and brought to saving faith in him. The Lord sees them all. He owns them all. So let us understand what identifies the full many to Jesus is not that they are already believers, but that they already belong to him. What? This is one of our favorite what's. I have many in this city. The Lord is definitely not referring to the ones Paul already knows. Our Lord often speaks this way 
about his elect church even before she is gathered to him, even before he bestows the gift of faith on her or them or you. In John 17, 6, our Lord's high priestly prayer, the night of his arrest, Jesus says to the Father, yours they were and you gave them to me. This means God has a possession of his people even before they take possession of him by faith. In fact, it is for these many who belong to him that Christ came. All these many will be called, all these many will be gathered to him from all the cities of the earth where he has placed them. None of them shall fail to be gathered to Christ through the gospel. In John 10, 16, Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. The many he has in the cities of men will listen to his voice. Whoever they are, he already knows them, though they know not him yet. Matthew Henry put this well, let us not despair then concerning any place when even in Corinth Christ had much people. Man, that, that's despair not of any place. I, this brother has really given us wisdom. Do not write Ichabod where the Lord has not written Ichabod. So here's the point. Those with a high view of God's sovereignty in the salvation of men should be the most optimistic witnesses to Christ on the earth. In fact, Paul matures to a place that goes even beyond optimism. He matures to a willingness to suffer for that very many. Here's what he says to Timothy. Therefore, I can endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, 2 Timothy 2.10. That's Paul's words, but they could have easily been spoken by Christ in one of the Gospels. I will endure everything for the sake of the elect. Now, I started this message by reminding you how the gospel of salvation stirs up jealousy Because fundamental to the message of the gospel is that all people everywhere must leave behind whatever ultimate commitments they previously held to and come to Christ if they are to be reconciled to God. This makes lesser kings jealous. This makes lesser lords jealous. This makes politicians jealous. This makes parents and siblings jealous. This makes religious leaders jealous. This makes old acquaintances jealous. This makes patriotic cities, states, and nations jealous because they all, in their idolatry, want to have the ultimacy in the souls of men. I know I just repeated myself. Don't call a physician. But let us understand. Let us understand. We have not preached the gospel well if it does not have this sound to it that says forsake whatever ultimate commitments you have previously held on to and come to Christ. 
and be reconciled to God. Christ alone is ultimate. And we have not preached the gospel well if his ultimacy is in a shadow, if it is hidden, if we have, we have heard a diluted gospel, if we have not heard a gospel that challenges the soul for ultimacy. Forsake everything and come to Christ. And what kind of gospel do you think Paul preached? A diluted gospel that hid the ultimacy of Christ? Of course not. Look at verse 6. If we ever doubted the ultimacy of the gospel, hear verse 6. You might not start an evangelistic conversation with verse 6, but you might have to finish one. Here it is. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Beloved, Jesus Christ wants his church to hear those words down through the ages and not be ashamed of them. Because those words are Paul, a prophet and apostle of God, establishing the ultimacy of Jesus Christ for all kinds of men. Rich men of Corinth, poor men of Corinth, chaste men of Corinth, fornicating men of Corinth. He's establishing the ultimacy of Jesus Christ for Jew and Gentile in Corinth by those words in verse 6. And when Paul says this in verse 6, he has a physical action that goes with it. He shakes off his garments. He's in a way saying, I don't want the dust of any of your synagogue upon me because you revile the righteousness of God. And then he adds words to the action. Your blood be on your own heads. That's a statement about vengeance being owed to them for that which they have done, not vengeance falling on them for that which the apostle failed to do in not warning them. He has warned them. He says, I am innocent. And then he says, from now on, I go to the Gentiles. It is it's important that we understand that the Apostle Paul here is not simply venting his own frustrations. He is in the office of a prophet. He is delivering a judgment in the oracle of God in his mouth. Calvin is, is correct about this. No human or private indignation is present in these words. It is zeal kindled by God in his heart. Yea, God raised him up to be a preacher and setter forth of his vengeance to the end that the enemies of the word might know that they should not escape scot-free for their stubbornness. Paul was serving God in the office of a prophet. And we know this especially from these words that he's lifting out of the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17, we hear this. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, 
and you give him no warning. This is the Lord challenging his prophet. If I say from heaven to the wicked that you shall surely die, and you, my prophet, give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Paul has those words of the prophet and that work of the prophet in his heart and in his mouth. Paul is not only by these words testifying to the ultimacy of Jesus Christ for all men, but he's also giving the final warning to those who revile him most severely. J.C. Ryle said, if I never spoke of hell, I should look on myself as an accomplice of the devil. Paul is speaking of hell here, that they have chosen hell even though they think they have not. And maybe in God's great mercy, this warning shook loose one of these hardened hearts whom Jesus knew before he was born and he came to the Savior. It is notable in our text that Samosthenes at the end, in verse 17, the one who is beaten, is a Jew and the ruler of the synagogue. It is not clear that he was one who believed the gospel when he was beaten. He was beaten by the Greeks who were in Gallio's tribunal. And then we find Samothenes at the top of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Perhaps he heard this warning. And after his body was beaten by the lords of the Gentiles, he took shelter under the wing of Christ. The word, that, the word of warning that Paul spoke in verse 6 surely was a word that invited more ridicule and more hatred of Paul. I ask you today, are you among those who ridicule preachers of the gospel, who warn men and women about hell? Do you want them to be silent about that? Do you want that somehow kept out of gospel ministry, thinking that it is a distraction, thinking that it is harsh? Beloved, it is not harsh. It is harsh to not warn men who will die in their iniquity. It is not harsh to say a hard thing that brings even more ridicule upon the one who said it. Paul surely suffered for saying this, but he was discharging his ministry to testify to the ultimacy of Jesus Christ in the gospel for all men, every kind, high and low. If sinners be damned, said Charles Spurgeon, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. Verse 
Paul was not chest pumping here. He was putting himself in a place of even more derision to offer them a final testimony to the ultimacy of their decision. The Jews of Corinth surely looked very different than the average Corinthian. They had a strong sense of pride like Jews all over the earth, that they were the people of God. And if they were unregenerate, their pride was off the charts. They were proud of their righteousness, that they were not perverse like their Corinthian neighbors. And here along comes the Apostle Paul, and he says, You Jews who know you are so different than the Corinthians, who do not walk up to the temple of Aphrodite, you Jews who do not bring prostitutes into your house, you Jews do not have the righteousness required to escape the vengeance of God against sinners. That inflamed them and made them jealous. Paul was saying that all that which they had put into being different from the Corinthians was not the righteousness that would allow them to escape the vengeance of God. Why would he say such a thing? Because, beloved, this is the gospel. Only Jesus Christ is our righteousness before God. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 30, his first letter, and said these words to them, and I say them to you in close. You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, We thank you for the ministry of the gospel in the ancient city of Corinth. We thank you for the way in which your apostle and your prophet Paul conducted the work of the risen Savior. Lord, we thank you for the kind, timely word that came to your servant Paul, how it refreshes our soul as we leave this place in just a matter of minutes, and go out into the world where the name of Jesus Christ is scarcely welcomed. We are refreshed that you will care for us and tend to our souls with timely encouragements so that we would endure to the very end. O gracious God and Father, we pray that you would indeed help us each search our hearts today and indeed see that which only faith can see, the ultimacy of Jesus Christ for all men, that he alone is the righteousness required to be reconciled to God, and that he alone has the generous heart, the open hand, the mercy that is without end to give that righteousness to those who will come to an end of themselves, an end of their boasting, an end of their self-righteousness, and ask him for it. Lord, we pray that all believers who hear these things would be strengthened and fortified against the reviling of the world, and that we would not look upon sinners and begin a a ministry of condemnation, 
but look upon them with a ministry of gospel preaching, gospel teaching, and testify to them that we ourselves were once where they were, under the wrath of God, but you visited us, and you have shown into our hearts the glory of Jesus Christ as our offered lamb, as the blood that cleanses all unrighteousness, as the life that gives all holiness, as the key to hell and heaven, and that we have been brought to him and he coming to us. O Lord, may we speak these things, believe these things, and not quit. In Jesus' name, amen.